And we're going to be in chapter 18 this morning. And if you don't have a Bible, that's fine. The text is uh, there in the bulletin before you. You know, one of the predictions that was made uh, both hundreds of years ago and recently was that as the world became more industrialized, as, uh, as, techn- as technology flourished and advanced, that as you saw that, as science became more sophisticated and accomplished, that as that spread around the world, that you would see less and less religion, less and less spirituality. And uh, that's actually not happened. You know, one example that I've heard cited is at the very period of time where uh, South Korea just exploded in its scientific understanding, technological understanding, uh, even, even producing it itself, is when the church has flourished in South Korea at the exact parallel time. But there's another side to that too, and that is that you know, the predictions were that, well, science will end up doing for humanity what magic used to do. You know, there's just this innate human desire that I need to know more than I can learn just through my own observation and comparing notes with my peers and just doing chores. I need the supernatural to somehow speak into my life. And for a lot of cultures, what that looked like was magic. So that, you know, as science grows, you'll see that disappear. But you still find uh, that kind of spirituality, if we can call it that, all over the world. You find it in the United States. Now, here's the thing. That is a desire that really is in the core of people. You'll hear people say, well, I'm not really religious, but I'm spiritual. I mean, that's getting at that. I need something unseen, someone, something to speak into my life, even to tell me things that I don't even know I need to know. Now, in the verses right before our passage for this morning, just right before this in Deuteronomy 18... God, through Moses, talks about how the cultures that they are about to displace in the promised land, how they've gone about that. They have used things like sorcerers, wizards, uh, mediums, charmers. And God says, do not do that. By the way, it's interesting. The Bible never, ever says those things don't work. It never says those things don't work. It says they're not good for you. It says do not do that. You're forbidden to use those. However, in this passage you have God saying, but I know that you need someone to speak into your life. You need to know more than you can see through observation or through life experience. And I have provided the way for you to have that. How are they going to have that in the uh, the promised land? Deuteronomy 18, and we're starting in verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth. And he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. 
But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that what is happening in Greenville uh, physically would happen in our hearts this morning that as you are waking up trees and waking up azaleas where life has been there but it's been dormant, that you would do the same in your church, that where there is just, um, where there are tired hearts, hearts that are just either lazy or asleep or numb or indifferent or cold, not thriving, that this morning through your word you'll give life and awaken them. Father, we pray for the man or the woman or the child who's here this morning and has never had that life, has life physically, but doesn't have the new birth, that this morning you would give new life. And this is a tall order. So we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. When, when I was a campus minister in Mississippi, um, I, I was a campus minister at Mississippi State, Starkville, Mississippi. There was this house off campus, pretty close to campus, and uh, it was a beautiful old <clears throat> Victorian sort of house. It looked like a house from the Hampton Pinckney neighborhood, if you've driven through there, right, right close to where we are. And uh, someone had taken this house and had made it into a rental property. It was still beautiful on the outside, but had divided it into apartments. And so usually there were a lot of college students that lived there. And uh, in our ministry, we had a group of girls that lived in a larger apartment in this house. And then maybe upstairs from them was a smaller one. And there was a guy, a student there that they got to know named Lance. And um, it had one of these beautiful front porches that those kind of houses have. And, uh, you know, when the weather was nice, they'd all end up sitting out there and they'd solve the world's problems till, you know, the middle of the night. Well, one night they were out there talking and one of the young women in our ministry told me about how this conversation went with Lance. Lance was not a professing Christian, but he was very, uh, just had a good relationship with them and they were, were respectful toward him and he was respectful toward them. But one night as they were talking about the Bible, he made this comment to one of these young women named Laura. He said, look, I think, here's what I observe. You say that that book, and he meant the Bible, you say that you believe that that book is the actual Word of God. But I just think that if you really, really deep down believed that, you would just pour over it. You would study it. You would memorize large chunks of it if you really believed that. And she came to me later and said, I didn't know what to say because he's right. You know, 
just kind of, I don't think he intended to this, but it just left me without a leg to stand on. If these things that we as Christians claim are true about this book, if they're true, wouldn't that be the right response? Lance was on to something, right? And, and it's worth thinking about as we're here. I mean, and I've said this already in this series, but let me say it again. This is, I mean, look at us. This is a group of, pe- this is a group of hundreds of people who could be doing all kinds of other things on a Sunday morning or not getting out in the rain. And we've come into this room, and by the way, this is going on all over town. And we're gathering around a book, and we don't have like video of it being written. I mean, there's no audio transcripts of any kind. We have these words, and we're gathering around them because we believe them to be the very Word of God. Now, why is it legitimate for us to do this? And that's a question that in some ways gets to what does the Bible mean by prophecy or what prophets do. The prophet was God's provision for that thing that the human heart wants, that I I need something more than just news and, and peers and comparing notes with other moms and dads or friends and co-workers. I need something unseen to speak into my life and maybe tell me something that I don't even know that I need to know. That God's provision for that was the prophetic office, the prophet. So let's look at this this morning. And that covers a lot of ground, So, but this is a really important text for understanding that. So let's look at this first. The nature of prophecy and then the question of prophecy and then the culmination of prophecy. All right, the nature, and the question, and then the culmination. Now, what's the nature of prophecy? And this has always been the case, and this is really clearly uh, acknowledged in this, in this important passage, that it's simultaneously divine and human at the same time. Now, what do we mean by that? All right, look in verses 15 and 18... These verses, in some ways, really parallel each other, and they're helping us understand that prophecy is it's divine and it's human. All right, 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. All right, in verse 18. God saying, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Now, here's what you've got there. On the one hand, it's divine. God says, I will raise up prophets. Prophets don't appoint themselves. You don't look up when you're in your mid-twenties and say, you know, I think I'll be a prophet. God raises you up. And he says, you don't, when I raise you up, just because I raised you up, you don't just go say anything you want to say. You don't like have too much coffee and then vent. You say exactly what I say for you to say. You say all that I command you to say. So at that level, it's divine. And it's human. Because what else did he say? I'm going to raise up these prophets from among you, from among your brothers. The, the, the man, and he raised up prophetesses as well, the man or the woman, but I'm just going to say he, that I raise up from your midst. It may be the guy you know, who shot you with a BB gun in third grade. 
that you grew up, or whatever the Israelite equivalent of that is. And, and you remember that, and you think, if there's anybody who's not able to speak the Word of God, it's him. But if that's the one that I tap, if I raise him up from among you, among your brothers, maybe he's your cousin, and I've raised him up, and I put my words in his mouth, when he speaks those, you must receive them as my word, even though it's coming from a mortal man, a sinful man. All the prophets, all the prophetesses were mortals and sinners. And so here's what you get when you put those together. Look in the middle of verse 18. God says, I will put my words in his mouth. It's both. A prophet is someone who has literally God's words coming out of his human mouth. Now, why is it so important that this comes up in Deuteronomy? Where are they? They're in the wilderness. They've left Egypt. They've left slavery. Big review before we cross the Jordan River, which we established last week, is always on my left and always on your right. And we're going to keep that straight. All right, so they've left slavery, heading into the promised land. Big review, big recap. And part of the recap is to say, God's going to raise up the person who speaks on God's behalf. Now, why is that so important? If you had seen, or if your parents had seen, Moses go up on the mountain by himself with fire and thunder and smoke, terrifying, and speak with God, receive God's words and come down and tell it to you, it'd be clear to understand that's the guy that speaks for God. Even though they acted inconsistently, they did know that's clear, he speaks for God. Or if you had seen him go to the tabernacle, you know, the tent for worship that they had before the temple, and speak face to face with God, to speak so closely with God that on one occasion his face shone with light, like his face kind of became the moon. It reflected the light of God, and it frightened the Israelites. You would know he speaks for God, but here's the deal. You're going to cross over, you're going to cross over the Jordan. Moses is going to die. He's not going to go with you. And you're going to get three, four, five generations out. You're going to have your normal, established life in the promised land. And then one day a man's going to walk into your town, and he's going to say, Thus says the Lord. And what you're going to have to understand is if this is a true prophet, you cannot be dismissive. If you grew up with this guy and knew what a knucklehead he was when he was 10, you must receive the true prophet's words as my words. Now, that was relevant for them going in, but I mean, think about that even for us. Think about this. If you have a true prophet... And he speaks the very words of God, but he even writes down the very words of God. And those are preserved. And they're copied. They're copied with incredible care and diligence. They're copied so carefully that in the 1940s, when some manuscripts were found, scrolls were found that predated the oldest Hebrew manuscripts we had by like a millennium, that the words lined up still with what we had, that if you took that and you translated it into English and you got together in Greenville in 2012 and you opened up that English translation, what you'd be reading is the Word of God. And that's why we're here. 
real men, real humanity, but divine. Now, what's the question of prophecy? The question is, is this prophet the real deal? And there's two ways that you can be, you know, the wrong deal, not, not the real deal. One is much clearer. This is in verses 23, uh, 20 through 22. He says, if someone comes and speaks in the name of another god, deal breaker. Deal breaker. Do not even listen to that person. That's for sure not a prophet. But the one that's harder to discern is what if somebody comes and they say, thus says the Lord, I am saying this to you in the name of the Lord God Almighty, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but he's a false prophet, and what he's telling you is false. What's the test? Verse 22 says this, When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. And he says a few verses before that, whether it's the coming in the name of a false god or coming in my name and giving a false prophecy that I did not give, the punishment is the death penalty. That's very stark. And I don't know how that lands with you. Wow, that, that the penalty for doing that is capital punishment. But think about this. Think about if you had a madman, like a lunatic, who somehow became a kindergarten teacher. And let's say that he had uh, 25 little precious kindergarten students. And let's say he, he got 25 little containers and filled them with poison. And one day in school, he gave them out to the students, and he said, you know what this is? This is a special magic potion. If you drink this, you'll be the smartest person in your family. You'll learn more than anybody else. It's a special learning magic potion. Now, I want everybody here to keep this secret and go home. Don't even tell your mom or dad and drink it. And they all died. Now, I think... If you could prove that a guy did that, I think even like very gentle, gentle, kind, peaceful people would say, he's out of here. Death penalty. Even though you didn't like pick up a weapon and kill the children, you killed those children by giving them something lethal. Here's what this text is saying. When someone comes and says, hey, here's what God says and it's not true, that is the spiritual equivalent of giving you poison and saying, this will help you. I'm giving you this because God loves you and it's poison. God says, the way I view that is that that person gets the death penalty. Because I don't want my people to have poison. I want what is good and right and true and healthy. If someone comes and says something, it doesn't come true. That's a false prophet. Okay, I want to tell you one example of this in the Old Testament. It's one of my favorite examples about what a real prophet looks like. I'm going to see if I can condense this. This is in 2 Chronicles 18, which I know we're all familiar with, but just, just to recap. In 2 Chronicles 18, um, you've got, you have two kingdoms. It's the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah. The king of Israel is Ahab, and he is bad. The king of Judah is Jehoshaphat. 
which even though it's a funny name, let's just be honest, he is a good king. Bad king Ahab, good king Jehoshaphat. Ahab ends up having this alliance with Jehoshaphat by marriage. And he comes to Jehoshaphat and says, I'm going up to war against Ramoth Gilead. Will you help me? And Jehoshaphat says, my army is your army, my people are your people, but before we do, could we inquire for the word of the Lord? And Ahab says, okay. So he summons 400 prophets together. Now here's the problem. They're all false prophets. And so for the, Ahab and Jehoshaphat, they sit down, sit on thrones, 400 prophets come out, and they're prophesying, all of them, that this battle is going to be great. You're going to mop the floor with Ramoth Gilead. One of the prophets, he, uh, he makes iron horns and is like pretending that, you know, they're goring Ramoth Gilead. This is kind of like spear and magic helmet. You know, he's, he's doing that to them. And everything's going to go great. And I'm sure Ahab is just beaming. And finally, Jehoshaphat, I think, begins to smell a rat. And he looks over and says, Are there any prophets of the Lord? And Ahab, this is actually funny. Ahab says, There's one, Micaiah, but I hate him. Because he never prophesies good about me, but only evil. I hate that guy. And Jehoshaphat says, the king should not say so. That's kind of like, now, now. Well, they, they send someone to summon Micaiah. And as the messenger is bringing him to the kings, he says, okay, now listen. All the prophets spoke favorably about this situation. Could we, you know, for a change, let your word be favorable like their word? And Micaiah says, as the Lord lives... What God speaks, that's what I'm going to say. So he shows up and they say, Micaiah, should we go to war against Ramoth Gilead? And he says, go up and triumph. They'll be given into your hands. And apparently Ahab knew he was being sarcastic. And he said, how many times have I told you, tell me what God says? Micaiah says... I looked and I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains like sheep without a shepherd. And Ahab turns to Jehoshaphat and said, I told you that's what he always does. This is exactly what I'm talking about. So he has him thrown into prison and he says, Feed him on meager rations of bread and water until I return in peace. To which Micaiah says, If you return in peace... I am not a prophet who has spoken by the Lord. And then he looks at everyone around him and says, Hear this, you peoples. Kind of like a, you know, the guy in cuffs going off going, Everybody got that? Well, guess what happens? Exactly what he said would happen. But, here's, I don't want to say problem, but here's the tension. That story gets at a dilemma that this text creates. Every commentary that I read on this passage acknowledged this dilemma. If you have to wait to see if a prophecy comes true, you know, if the prophecy is you're going to get killed, that's tricky. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like, did Ahab, when he has an arrow in his chest, just finally go, oh... I mean, I think he knew... Now, 
let's back up. A true prophet over time, as the things he said or she said, as they came true, their credibility would more and more be established. But the dilemma is, what if there's something bad prophesied about me? I don't know if this is a true prophet or not. Would I have to wait for the bad thing to actually come true to know that I'm listening to? This is a dilemma. And here's the interesting thing. You can, from the Gospels, recognize something that was already going on in Jewish thought. In Jewish thought, as people poured over this text, they recognized that really two things are going on. Or maybe there's one thing that's the culmination of what's been happening all along. God is establishing this office called the prophet. But what we need is a definitive prophet. Because besides this being somebody who tells you the truth, there was another criterion. Did you catch it? Moses said it and God said it. I'm going to raise up a prophet like you, Moses. I'm going to raise up someone like you. By the time of the Gospels, there was already a Jewish expectation that we're waiting on the prophet with a capital P who will be the ultimate fulfillment of this prophet. The text about a prophet is a prophecy. Isn't that interesting? We're waiting for the definitive prophet. When John the Baptist showed up and said and did these amazing things, people came to him and said, Are you the Christ? No. Are you Elijah? That was prophesied in Malachi that he would come back. No. Are you the prophet? Not a prophet. Are you the prophet? No. When Jesus fed the 5,000, 5,000 men plus the women and children, miracle, famous miracle, when he got through, it says in John chapter 6 that the response of the people was not, this is indeed the Messiah. That's not what they said. They said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. What are they thinking? They are thinking Deuteronomy 18. This is the guy. And here's what we have to ask ourselves. To be not just somebody who's a mouthpiece for God, but to be a prophet like Moses, what would have to be true? You would have to grow up without your true dad. You would have to have survived an infanticide that went on all around you, where there was an attempt to kill your entire people group by killing the babies in your age range. And somehow, in God's mercy, you were not killed. You would have to leave profound wealth profound privilege. Remember, Moses, we're thinking wilderness, wilderness, wilderness. He grew up with wealth, wealth, wealth in Pharaoh's household. You'd have to leave tremendous wealth and privilege and live in obscurity and poverty on behalf of God's people. You would have to do miracles. You would have to be identified, because Moses was for the rest of his life, identified with speaking the Word of God on a mountain. 
who fits the bill. When Jesus begins His public ministry, interestingly, in the wilderness, when He preaches and sort of goes public with a sermon, guess where the sermon takes place? It is known as the Sermon on the what? Mount. And He speaks the very Word of God. Now, here's what I want us to think about. As we've said before, we use the name Christ sometimes like it's Jesus' last name. Not being irreverent, but almost like He's Mr. Christ. It's not His last name. It is a title. Christ comes from the Greek word that's a translation of Messiah. Messiah and Christ mean the same thing. The Anointed One. And there were three offices that were anointed in the Old Testament. The king and the priest and the prophet. But the Christ was the one who would come and be all three in one person at one time. The definitive king, priest, and prophet for God's people forever. When we come together and we talk about the work of Christ, a lot of what we talk about is His work as a priest. He sacrifices Himself for sinners. And we've got to keep coming back to that all the time. And we talk about how He's the King. He rules over everything, everywhere, all the time. He owns and rules everything. We, we tend to pay less attention to the fact that part of the good news, part of the gospel of the person and work of Christ is that He is our definitive prophet. He is the great fulfillment of Deuteronomy 18. He speaks the very Word of God. He's fully human, but He's fully divine. He not only speaks the very words of God because they've been entrusted to Him by God, but because He Himself is God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. What does that mean for us? It means that we're going to have to do some ruthless self-evaluation about what Bibles are. Now, I've quoted this phrase before that, uh, that a writer named Flannery O'Connor, a southern writer, she said that the South is a Christ-haunted region. Not indwelt, haunted. That it's the image of Christ like a ghost that you sort of know is around... And you know it's supernatural. People bump into it or him. But it's not a relationship. It's just around. God's people are to be the ones who are not haunted by Jesus. But in Christ. And in communion with Him. Who abide in Him. As they abide in His words. And here's what I would ask you. Or let me put it this way. There's a bad way to have Christian disciplines. And there's a great way to have Christian disciplines. When I say Christian disciplines, I mean things like regular Bible reading, regular Bible study, memorizing Scripture, coming to worship, being in a small group, prayer, a life of service. The bad way to do those things is to think... If I do this, God likes me. And if I miss three days, He's angry. 
Or if I do this more than my peers, then God likes me more than my peers. Or if I do this at all, it somehow gives me more pluses on my ledger than minuses. All those are bad. All those are merit-driven. The New Testament nukes those. So that's bad. What's the good? It's to say this. If Jesus Christ is my great prophet and if He tapped as God men to be His spokesman so that when they spoke, it was the very words of God, the very words of Christ, i.e. the apostles. And I have a book with the prophets and the apostles. I must figure out ways to get this into my life. And believe me, there will be parts that we like and there will be parts that cut against the very grain of who we are. I mean, you may be reading and Jesus is taking it to the Pharisees and you go, yeah, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Fun to read, you know, because I'm never, I'm never self-righteous. That's the great thing. I'm never self-righteous. I'm always consistent with my own standards. Sure. But you may be reading and Christ says... <clears throat> If you go to the temple, and thank church for us, and you're going to give your gift, you're going to give your monetary offering, and then you remember that your brother has something against you, you must go be reconciled to your brother. Then you come give your offering. And our mind goes to someone with whom there's been a breach, and we do not feel like wading into the awkwardness of fixing that and speaking about it. And Jesus says, but you must. He speaks to people who love to be happy. And on that mountain, one of the first things He says is, you will be blessed if you mourn. And that is not a funeral text. The mourning is not over a loss by death. The mourning is over our sin. Before God, if you will mourn, completely counterintuitive, you will be blessed and you will be comforted. But who would have known that had he not said it? What are the words of Christ to us? Because something that we have the opportunity to do as we leave this room is to open up this book. And I would say, not because they're more the Word of God, but because it's what we're talking about. Maybe to begin with the Gospels... Gospel of Mark, let's say, and to begin to read and see where when Christ says something and it cuts against the grain of how I think or I feel or how I would naturally respond to ask ourselves, will I go with my own instincts or is this the very Word of God? And here's the beautiful thing, that what we'll hear Him saying and what this whole book is saying over and over, what's the first thing He said on the mountain? As you look at your life and you realize, I'm doing a horrible job. I don't think I do squat that He says to do. And I think I don't, I don't do the things He says to do. I do the things He says not to do. I think spiritually I must be the worst. And He says, that means spiritually you're bankrupt, you're poor. And guess what? Are you poor in spirit? You're blessed. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. You need a righteousness that you cannot produce, but that I have secured for you. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, 
and I'll give you rest. Let me end with this. Um, I think I've shared this before. I, I, I got to talk one time with a guy who used to be a professor in a seminary, has a ministry of his own now. Really, really smart guy. Doctorate from Harvard, the whole deal. Beard. I mean, why, why would you have a doctorate from Harvard and not have a beard, for crying out loud? Beard, Harvard. And we're, we're talking one day, and uh, I said, let me ask you something. You, because the divinity school that he went to was not friendly to evangelical Christians. In fact, it was hostile. And I said, I mean, you were scrutinized. You had to do a dissertation. You had to meet with these professors. How did you hang on to your Christian faith in that environment? Now, I thought he was just going to give this brainiac answer and walk me through these 11, you know, fine-tuned doctrinal points. And you know what he said? He said, honestly, I would come home from class every day and I would kind of say, here's what my skeptical professors are, are offering and here's what Jesus is offering. And I always liked this better. Amen. Let's pray together. Oh, Father... Thank you for raising up prophets. Lord Jesus, thank you for raising up apostles. But in a particular way, King Jesus, High Priest Jesus, Great Prophet Jesus, it's you that we remember and praise. That you came as the Word and gave us the words of eternal life that you've preserved this book, that it could come to us in a way that's trustworthy and true. It's not poison. It's health. It's nectar. It's life. Forgive us for neglecting it. Change our hearts to cherish it and treasure it. Would you even remind us this afternoon, tonight, tomorrow morning, ten years from now, to reach for it, and love it, not because it earns us something, but because it is about you, and you've loved us. We pray this in your name. Amen.